Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're bringing back Third Wednesday Theology and we're reading Bob Inc.'s The Christian Family. Staying on that bobbing train. Man, I thought, I read The Wonderful Works of God, and I was like, well, that was great. And then someone was like, well, you should read Bovink's book, The Christian Family. And so I bought us some copies. This is a shorter book, 10 chapters from Herman Bovink. And the reason I decided I wanted us to talk about it is because I'm intrigued by people who are outside of our cultural moment, talking about things that are very interesting to our cultural moment. So obviously anything about gender, sexuality, manhood, womanhood, family, parenting, singleness, these are all very fraught topics in our modern conversation. So I'm interested in someone writing a hundred years ago about the same topic, but outside of the North American context and outside of our cultural moment, because sometimes we need that kind of distance to help us approach topics in a way that feels fresh and different. And that's not fraught by the arguments and fights and debates and conversations we're having about them. And so Herman Bovink's The Christian Family, translated by Nelson Klosterman. And uh, who's the publisher on this one, Chris? Christian's Library Press, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Sounds very Dutch Reformed. I'm sure it is. It's in Grand Rapids, you know. What are the chances, Bob, that Bovink had barbecue beans? I don't think that's book? a very Dutch. I don't know, but I don't think that's a very Dutch food. Well, well the reason I, I was asking is because somebody sent us some snacks. But they it's not really like your traditional snack. This is one of the weirdest snacks we've ever had. It's baked beans. Bethany's laughing because she agrees. It's weird. It's a weird snack. I had here to heat up beans, beans for this episode. Over here eating some baked beans. But the room smells very barbecue-y. It yeah. smells good in here right now. There was a, Dusty, apparently this came out of an argument you got into. Yeah. At a dinner yeah, with someone. Was, <laughs> at a birthday dinner and uh, this guy, he just kept bringing up beans. We're having Indian food and he kept bringing up barbecue beans. And he bases his barbecue decisions based on the quality of the beans at the restaurant. So... They were traveling to Kansas City. He said, I'm bringing you back beans. Him and his wife, they brought back beans. We're eating them. Jack stack beans are apparently, the argument right now on the table is jack stack beans are the best. That's his claim. Here they are in front of us three hours away. I've decided there's two ways to reason his claim out. One I agree with and one I don't. If what he's saying is the barbecue beans are the most important food at a barbecue place, absolutely false. Not even true. I don't know how it could be true. And this listener who thinks that is wrong. He just straight up will say like, so when we, when I asked him about brisket, he was just like, well, no, they're, they're, it doesn't matter. Their beans are trash. So you got to go back. Yeah, see, to I disagree. It, that's where it, yeah, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Beans are the most optional thing. If you're eating barbecue, like if the beans are good, you eat them. If they're not good, you leave them on the side and you eat the good brisket. So I, that's what, I said that too. I was like, yeah. it's kind of like cornbread. It's like a, just a filler yeah. to the other stuff. Now, if what he's not saying, if what he meant to say is you can <laughs> tell who has the best meat by how good the beans are, then I'm interested. I'm like, okay, I'd never thought about the the entry to the good brisket being through the beans. And, the, and if the beans are bad, then the brisket's probably bad. But if the beans are good, the brisket's probably good. Yeah. I could get on board with that argument. I cannot get on board with the beans are the most important part of the meal. <laughs> well, but, but either way, we've already wasted too much time talking about the they're beans. They're good. I'm eating them. They are. I, I would, I mean, they're tasty. It's just an odd, you know, it's like, it's not a finger food snack is what I'm saying. We had to have some like silverware up in here and back to Bob Inc and beans. <laughs> So we want to tackle uh, 
Herman Bovink's The Christian Family. This is a, a small book, 10 chapters. Um, it's just basically a biblical theology of the family. He's just treating um, the family. So let me, the reason I say it's a biblical theology, so think about when you hear the phrase biblical theology on this podcast, that's a technical term. That doesn't just mean theology that's based on the Bible. It means a way of reading the Bible that starts in Genesis and moves to Revelation. So here are the chapters of Bavink's book, The Origin of the Family, The Disruption of the Family, The Family Among the Nations, The Family in Israel, The Family in the New Testament, Dangers Confronting the Family, Marriage and Family, Family and Nurture, Family and Society, The Future of the Family. So you can see how he's sort of starting at the beginning of the, the redemptive historical narrative, working toward the end, and uh, as he always does, I think Bavink's thought here will be full of some treasures. And so on this podcast, we're going to talk about chapters one and two, which is basically Genesis one through three, the origin of the family and the disruption of the family, or to think about it differently, creation and fall, but through the lens of how they affected God's design for the family. We're not going to walk through the whole argument. I'm just going to draw out some of the key features here. I think one of the things I appreciate about Bovink is that he's um, a creative and careful theologian. And so he wants to start us. The book begins this way. The history of the human race begins with a wedding. What a great first sentence. That's like one of the best lines, opening lines of a theological book ever. What a great first sentence. He says, he he spends a couple paragraphs talking about the Genesis narrative. And he says, within these few features lies embedded everything we need to know about the origin, the essence, and the destiny of humanity. So what I like about him is he's just treating, he's saying Genesis 1 and 2 give us Everything we need to know about origin, essence, destiny, they tell us a lot about God's design for humanity. And specifically, of course, he wants to focus on what does it mean to be created in the image of God and what does it mean to be created male and female. And obviously, this maps onto our thinking about things like sexual ethics. It maps onto questions related to transgenderism. Uh, it, it, it maps onto all kinds of things. And so let me just read you a few sentences from the middle of page five that really ground a biblical vision of humanity. Bavink writes, God is the creator of the human being and simultaneously also the inaugurator of sex and of sexual difference. This difference did not result from sin. It existed from the very beginning. It has its basis in creation. It is a revelation of God's will and sovereignty and is therefore wise and holy and good. Therefore, no one may misconstrue or despise this sexual difference, either within one's own identity or in that of another person. That statement right there is enough to ground a whole lot of our thinking about questions related to things like gender identity. Because what he's saying is, because God created humanity and created us as sexually differentiated beings, you can't misconstrue or despise that, whether in yourself or in someone else. And that is... Really, really basic and simple, but also really, really important for us to remember in the modern world. The other thing Bavink draws out of the Genesis narrative is that God made us in his image, male and female, for a task, gave us work to do. This is what theologians call the cultural mandate. And I like how Bavink describes this. He says, God gave the man and woman the obligation to develop all the treasures that God had deposited in the earth. I think that's a great way of thinking about the command to be fruitful and multiply. It is a command to 
have children and populate the earth and grow the human race, but it's also a command to develop the treasures God has deposited in the earth. One of my seminary professors used to say, the Garden of Eden was like a painting, and then the rest of the earth is like, the rest of the earth is like a pencil sketch. And the task given to Adam and Eve is make the rest of the earth like the painting. Fill it in, color it in, make it beautiful. Take take the the rudimentary outline that God has provided and bring it into its fullness and into its completion. And so I think that idea of developing the treasures God had deposited in the earth is a great way of thinking about our calling as human beings. This is why Christians believe that science is important and art is important and innovation is important and entrepreneurship is important and starting companies and starting families, all of these ways of taking what God has given us and developing it and bringing out its potential is a really beautiful and God-honoring thing to do. So implicit in what the things you've just highlighted, Bob, and what Bob Inc. is laying down is a very clear theology of embodied existence. Mm. Your sexual gender matters. Uh, living in, working in this world matters. The earth creation matters. And so he's just laying down a, a solid theology for embodied existence, caring about this world. So I, I, this is what I love about uh, neo-Calvinist thought overall, but Bob Inc. in particular, is the way that hey, this world matters. This physical world matters. Your body matters. All these things God has given to you as a gift and steward them well. And you need to, you need to be giving yourself to something and married couples even need to be tending to something vocationally, like giving themselves to something. John Mark Comer says, every marriage needs a gardening project. Hmm. And that's what I was reminded of when we were reading this. Bavink also draws out of the Genesis account, um, the differentiation between the man and the woman. Um, he draws out the fact that the first human being was created immediately as a man, neither neuter nor androgynous, but with a specific sex. And that nevertheless, God created him lonely and created him that way so that he could implant within man's soul the yearning for someone who would be like him. And then that God created the woman out of the man and that there's theological importance in those realities of the Genesis story. And of course, role differentiation within that aspect of the Genesis story. And what I like about Bovink and a, a way that sort of like modern complementarianism probably can learn from Bovink is he has a very traditional and beautiful way of emphasizing the difference between men and women, but also the deep unity and um, necessity of each for the other in a way that sort of in the best way combines differentiation and unity. And, and he even draws the children into that at the end of this chapter and sort of makes this Trinitarian connection of yeah. like, if you have father, mother, child, there's kind of these three different types of beings that reflect the diversity and unity of the Trinity. Yeah. And this is, this is what marks Bobbing's theology, his Trinitarian, the, how it, the unity and diversity, how that those Trinitarian themes just run throughout his entire work theologically, but it, it really comes to the fore in a beautiful way. As you just pointed out, Bob, when he starts talking about the family. Now, I want to draw something out here that is actually very, very basic to both Protestant and Catholic theology, but that sometimes in modern theology gets missed. And that is that all the ancient theologians talk about the um, family as sort of the most basic social unit. And then beyond the family, sort of like groups, churches, tribes or neighborhoods or peoples, and then societies. So there's this sort of like lesser to greater, the family being sort of one of the most fundamental social units. And here's how Bovink writes about that. He says, 
this three-in-oneness of relationships and functions, of qualities and gifts, constitutes the foundation of all of civilized society. The authority of the father, the love of the mother, and the obedience of the child form in their unity the threefold cord that binds together and sustains all relationships within human society. So what he's saying is the, f- the relationships in a nuclear family are sort of a, a, a baseline or a foundation of all the kinds of relationships that are present within human society. He says, no, listen to this. This, this is a good reminder for us. No man is complete without some feminine qualities. No woman is complete without some masculine qualities. And to both man and woman, the child is held up as an example, quoting Matthew 18, 3. Mm. And so, I mean, again, that's, you, you don't, you rarely do you hear people say, you know, you're not complete as a man unless you have some feminine qualities. And you're not really complete as a woman unless you have some masculine qualities. We're usually trying to emphasize the difference between masculine and feminine. Nor do we hear often, hey, you need to be more like a child. Like the child is an example for yeah. you as an adult. But that's actually very foundational to Jesus' teaching. And he says, um, authority, love, and obedience are the pillars of all human yeah. society. So yeah. what he sees expressed in those relationships is there's an authority, there's a love, there's an obedience, and those are foundational for human society to work right. And you think about the ways in which we we fight in culture, so to speak, like those kind of three areas are always kind of being called into question. Authoritative structures, authority, love, how we're defining that, and then obedience. Should we submit ourselves to you know, certain authorities, or should we just be individualistic and no one can tell me what to do? So you, you see those three things is so insightful because you can trace all, all, probably most conflicts in our culture along those three lines. Bethany, how do you feel about the fact that Herman Bovink would not have wanted you to vote? A little weird. (laughs) Rightly so. Let me explain why this is fascinating. I was with, I was with last week, two of the best, two of the premier Bovink scholars at work, uh, Grace Dutanto and James Eglinton. And so we talked a lot about Bovink last week. And one of the things they draw out in their work on Bovink is they point out that the Netherlands, when Bovink is writing, is a very traditional society, but not an individualistic society. So they're like, one of the hard things for Americans about reading Bovink is Americans are so individualistic. And so we tend to think in terms of individual rights. But the Netherlands in the 1800s is a very communal society. And the way it worked was each household had a vote. And so Bovink was so committed to the essential organic unity of the household that it was like, actually, he wanted to preserve the household's vote being expressed in society. So it wasn't like a man, woman, like men should vote, women shouldn't vote. It was really like the husband as the head of a household, whoever's the head of a household has a vote. And that was how the society worked for a long time until about the 1920s in Netherlands. And, you know, when rightly they gave women the right to vote, but it was interesting that in that society, it was less about male female dynamics and more about individual versus solidarity. And like, how, how do you keep the solidarity of a family unit while also allowing individuals to express their political will? And it's just a fascinating thing that like, yeah, that would have been a whole different argument in on American soil than it was in the dynamic of a a culture where the the unit of sort of the family is seen as the foundational sort of solidarity. Yeah, because in the U.S. it was land holding, like right. it was economic. It was it w- wasn't based on a, a family union. Yeah, but to be fair, we have to be fair to the historical record. He did change his mind. He did change his mind. He did come and around. His wife was one of the key crusaders for women's suffrage in yeah. the Netherlands. Yeah, and she she, she was basically like, uh, 
hey, Herman, you need to come along on hey, this. Hey, buddy, like, come this, on. We, we need to grow here. And that yeah. was good Good for her. And that actually is, a, I think, an interesting expression of, and I don't, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of their marriage, but an interesting expression of both a marriage where there's mutual love and respect, but also one where each individual sort of is like challenging the other and calling them forward into a greater expression of what's good for society. Um, the second chapter of this book is titled The Disruption of the Family. And so he basically traces out uh, the fall. And Bavink, in a very good and biblical way, wants to draw out again that the fall affects the dynamic of the family, the dynamic between husband and wife. And it looks, it, it involved, he says, the first sin immediately involved a reversal within the family order. I had never thought about this until I read this sentence. Yeah, me neither. Adam and Eve sinned not only as individuals, but they sinned also as a husband and wife, as father and mother. So he's, he's seeing them like there's an individual sin of Adam and an individual sin of Eve, but also there's an, a, a failure to live into the roles God had given them as a husband and as a wife, and all of that is, is bound up together in the fall. Um, and that's a fascinating way of understanding and, and, and seeing the, the distinct differences in the curse given to Adam, the curse given to Eve, how all that plays out in the Genesis 3 narrative. Dusty, he talks about shame. All of us who thought you had to go watch a Brene Brown video to learn about oh, shame. Oh, my word. We just need to read some Herb and Bobbing. Don't could, do that. We could learn more about shame. Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on what he says about shame because it, remember, he's obviously now in America, shame has become a major topic of conversation. Keep in mind, this is written 100 years ago outside of our modern dialogue. Uh, but he's working out Genesis 3. Why did they feel naked and ashamed? Right? Why did they go cover themselves? Here's what Bavink writes. I'll read a few paragraphs or a few sentences and then invite you to talk about it, Dusty. Shame is a sense of discomfort a feeling of uneasiness, which consists particularly in fear of loss, something that overtakes us when we have done or suppose we have done something immodest. A person is ashamed about something that should have remained behind the curtain of modesty and purity, something that has nevertheless been observed by others. Shame is unique to humanity. It is a sign of an awakened conscience that human capacity which pronounces a person guilty and condemns him. Through the function of conscience, a person retains something that disapproves of sin, something that stands as a judge over and against a person. What the conscience does for us inwardly in the soul, shame performs for us outwardly in the body. Shame has been described not without cause, as the body's conscience. Both conscience and shame demonstrate the brokenness and disintegration of human distance or human existence, the disharmony of human life, the distance between what a person ought to be and what a person really is. Both point back to that disruptive event at the beginning of history when humanity fell from the height occupied at creation. I'm interested, what do you what do you see there that's helpful in thinking about shame? What do you see that's maybe missing or, or not fully present? Well, I think one of the blessings or one of the blessings of Bavink here is that he also is, I think what's helpful for me at least is that he's separating conscience and shame and how they all collide together. Cause he says conscience and shame together drive a person to cover himself and to conceal himself. And so 
one of the ways that we've always talked about shame is that shame's always living out there. And so that's what you see in Genesis three. As soon as there's, as soon as there's sin, there's guilt and that guilt kind of lives within. And then there's shame, which is that covering of like, Oh, I'm naked. Mm -hmm. You know, that's external. Yeah. And so shame is always living out there. And so, um, that, that phrase of the, this is the body's conscience. Mm. I've, you know, I've never heard that and that's pretty helpful. And then he also says the person is doubly wounded who silences his conscience. That, that, that's really helpful too. Cause that's dangerous, you know, like you don't want that for people. And so, yeah, those are, those are some of the helpful things. And on page 12, I found this to be a really interesting theological observation for human beings. Conscience, shame, and clothing are intimately related. That's interesting. So the fact that we are wearing clothes points to our shame in some ways. Yeah, and yeah, to the conscience. conscience. Yeah. He says, together they serve to remind us of our God-created beginning and of our deepest fall. They presuppose our guilt and preserve our humanness. They simultaneously oppress us and liberate us. All three, conscience, shame, and clothing, distinguish human beings from angels and animals and provide human beings a unique position in creation. I've never thought about the fact that, like, what makes us different? Well, it's conscience, shame, and clothing and are clothing. three things that animals yeah. don't have. Yeah. Your dog doesn't have a conscience, Bethany. My, no, he doesn't. Even but though your dog has clothes. Like yeah. <laughs> you bet your dog has clothes. No. He's got a puffer vest, but that's it. So, Not by choice. So I was in a conversation with Mindy I don't know, a month or so ago. And we were talking about not, not from bobbing, but this, this topic in some ways. And I like just throughout this question, we just randomly talking like, will we be wearing clothes in the new heavens and new earth? And she's like, well, what do you think about that? And I was like, there's this part of me that thinks it would be weird that we wouldn't be. And she says, well, what does that say about the shame that you may, maybe you carry? And she got me. I was wow. like, oh, wow. Wow. It, it, just that idea of I have to be clothed and to think in the new heavens. And now I'm not making a case that we won't be wearing clothes, but when you think of the purpose of clothes, you start to wonder like, is, is, is there something intimately caught up in my shame in that sense of like, I need these clothes to cover if the thought of, Oh, we'll be like in the garden naked and unashamed in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know. That, yeah. That's a, Interesting dynamic there. I'm also trying to think about alien movies and think, do they usually show aliens clothed no. or are they show them sort of like androgynously nude, but not in a sexualized way. And I think it's like the latter. I don't remember. Right. I, you don't see aliens wearing like t-shirts, you know, like no, no yeah. alien movie. Has usually like a, it's a comedy if they are right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, right. humorous, but so it is interesting to think about the fact that clothing is a, is sort of a uniquely post fall reality and a uniquely human thing that connects to our sense of shame, our sense of the loss of innocence, our sense of conscience. One of the things that Bavink mentions here is that shame is a blessing, which you're not going to hear very often. It's not overall a blessing, but he says that shame can be a blessing because it, it's triggering your conscience. Yeah. And you don't hear in a lot of the modern Christian conversation about shame you tend to hear mostly about how shame is negative. You don't hear a lot about how shame is actually a blessing and a positive thing. Um, and the way that he talks about how it connects to conscience and is essentially a sign both of our lack of innocence, but also of our humanness. Yeah, we would, we would call it healthy shame. Yep. There's a sense of healthy shame 
that's good for a person. Not you don't want to be dwelling there very long. You don't want to like double down on it. But yeah, you you lose your sense of shame, and that that just you go to a very dark place morally. I mean, this a whole like people no longer are ashamed of the things that they do. They put stuff out on the internet. And you're like, and you know, prior generations, people were like, I would never put that stuff out there. So we've culturally lost a sense of shame in many ways. I can't remember which of the prophets, maybe you will know offhand, Chris, but one of the prophets in the Old Testament talked about God's people and his critique is they've forgotten how to blush, which seems to be connected to shame and guilt, right? It's like they, they've lost their embarrassment over their sin. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> the prophet is saying like, that's really bad. That's a sign of like serious spiritual decay. If you've lost the ability to blush, if you've lost the ability to, to feel embarrassed over the ways you've fallen short. Which is also interesting just in our cultural time right now with all of the sexual, the like this feel of this next sexual revolution that we're in. There's yeah. a sense of no shame. Yeah. Know? Yeah. But shame needs to get recaptured there a little bit. Yeah. All right. Any final thoughts on these first two chapters? I don't, you know, we, we've only looked at the origin of the family and the disruption of the family. So there's a lot ahead of us, but what stands out most? Just to highlight something that I pointed out earlier, just as he emphasized kind of the embodied reality of our existence as male and female in the, the first chapter. In the second chapter, he does something interesting where he talks about the, the punishment that Adam and Eve received. And he says, Eve was punished not only as a human being, but particularly as a mother and as a wife. So kind of what you were pointing out earlier, they sinned as a family, not just as individuals, but as a family. And then the punishment actually was tailored to their embodied existence as male, as female, and their, their calling and their role. And this, this again, not that I hadn't thought about that before, but to have him press it this way, to kind of apply the, the, the judgment piece and connect it to the embodied piece, connect it to male and female, just adds, again, I think it adds, especially in our culture, adds to the significance of being male and female, that, that there is particularities in the way God deals with us, the way God hmm. has um, both, both in judgment, but also redemptively. And so our maleness and femaleness, while not everything about us, are far more significant than I think we often get it credit for credit for in our Christian theology. And Bob Inc. reminds us of that so well. I love when he says about the man from now on hunger and love drive him restlessly onward. And I underline that as like, yep, I feel that. I think this text, Chris, in what you just mentioned helps to shed some light on that passage in first Timothy two, where Paul says, uh, Eve or the woman will be saved through childbearing, which is a super confused. Every time yeah. you teach this text, like what in the world does that mean? And P and you know, commentators go round and round and I've heard pastors just murder this text and, and say all kinds of bad stuff. But if you understanding in light of Genesis, right. And in light of if the curse is given to Eve, particularly around pain and bearing children and around that, that sort of function, then it makes sense that this is sort of alluding to Mary, right. And to the reality that like also the way God's going to bring redemption. So the judgment mm. is is particular to the man and to the woman, but also redemption is particular in the sense that God's going to use Mary to bring into the world the Savior, and he's going to use Christ's death on the cross as our mediator to bring redemption into the world. And so there's this 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 sort of matching of the way that redemption yeah. maps yeah. onto the way that the fall uh, affects us as well. So I think it does help us and we have a really good robust vision of Genesis one through three helps us read the rest of the Bible and understand how the story is unfolding. 
Well, listeners, so the good news is Third Wednesday Theology will be back it's for back. the foreseeable future as we continue to make our way through this book. And so if you want to, this one is probably a little less expensive than The Wonderful Works of God. It's a smaller book. I'm looking at the last page right now. This is a 168-page book. So paperback, easy to buy, easy to read. If you were intimidated and you didn't read Bovink with us last time, you're like, man, it looks like a big, heavy book. Get this one. It's lighter. It's a little simpler. The chapters are shorter. And it pertains to subjects related to, you know, maleness and femaleness and embodiedness in society and family that just relate to all of our lives and all of us are living in these contexts. And so this is a very, very immediately applicable work of theology that I think you'll find helpful. So thanks for listening along as we journey through this book. And um, next month on the third Thursday, we'll take another stab at the next chapter. Third Thursday? Man. (laughs) Say it again. Third Wednesday. Third Thursday just sounds better. It does. It's, there's more of an alliteration. It's an outtake. That's an outtake. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in and we pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We always love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.